Hello there. Thanks for joining us on the Christ Covenant Sermon Talkback. The Sermon Talkback is where pastors and members of Christ Covenant can process the sermon, ask questions, and more practically apply the content of the sermon. If you do have a question you would like to have dialogued, please use our text to pastor line at 404-465-1737. And if you'd like to find more resources, visit ChristCovenant.com slash resources. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Guys, we have a very special talk back today. Not one, not two, but three guests are joining me. It's a party. Jordan Coughlin, who would not recognize that baritone voice that just <laughs> spoke into the microphone. But next to Jordan, we have you know one of our favorites on the talk back, Jeremy Brooks. Also a favorite from uh, Our Daily Rhythm. Hey, guys. But for the first time ever on the Sermon Talkback, brand new Christ Covenant staff member. All right, let's get the drum roll. Jamie Freund. Jamie Freund, hailing from Savannah, former employee of Savannah College of Art and Design, mm-hmm. but now on staff here at Christ Covenant. Jamie, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So yesterday we kind of looked at Acts 11. Really interesting passage of scripture I'm intrigued by this whole like Church of Antioch thing. Um, we obviously went there in the Missions Conference. We're going to spend a little time in there over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a different kind of a sermon series. We're kind of just making some observations from something that the Lord did in a time, in, in a very important time. A significant time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And yesterday we really talked about the interesting thing about Antioch, it's the first time that the gospel goes to a big city. Mm-hmm. Jerusalem was a city, uh, obviously an incredibly important city, but maybe about 50,000 residents. Very, very small when you compare it to Rome, which had over a million, or Alexandria, which was also a massive city. And then, of course, Antioch, which was the next biggest city in the Roman world, I mean, we don't exactly know. A lot of historians, uh, you know, estimate eight to nine hundred thousand folks there. I mean, so it was just, it was basically a million it's people. A I mean, a big time city, and the population density. This is what this is what's so interesting. Do you know what the population density of Midtown is? It's the most dense part of the city. Anyone? Anyone? Mm-mm. I do not. I think it's forty-two people an acre. Okay, wow. which. Just to kind of give you an idea, the D's family, guys, not to not to be boastful here, but our lot is almost an acre. It's like 0.97 wow. of an acre. We got a place in the back there. And it's awesome. Yeah. That's, I mean, no, great. I mean, so there's only five people an acre mm-hmm. at the D's land. But in Midtown 42, in Antioch, they believe there's 200 people an acre. Yeah. Which wow. is which is unbelievable <laughs> for me to think about, like 200 people living in my lot. Yeah. Very densely populated very much um, a city, an urban an urban area. And the gospel, of course, goes there and it just flourishes. It just explodes. Um, but this is kind of interesting. Um, and um, it may not be what we think we have seen when we think of kind of the modern day city. And why do you think the opposite seems to be true today? Yeah, I think that's a good point, Jamie. I mean, one of the things I said yesterday, and there's probably a lot of reasons, um, I think that when you see kind of the classic coming-of-age American story, kid grows up in Christian household, oftentimes that's in a more kind of a homogenous community 
whether it's uh, like a small town or like a suburban area or whether it's just in a very, you know, they went to a private Christian school and there was a very tight knit community within that school. And then they go and, and everybody kind of believes the same thing of all the people that they know. And then they go to a pluralistic setting. Uh, a lot of times that kid comes back and, you know, their mind has been changed. They've lost their faith. They, they're questioning everything they believe. I think there's a lot of things going on. Um, I think number one, the number one thing that's happening, the, the question I'd like to ask is what was their faith actually in? Did they actually understand faith in God through Christ Jesus? They had a relationship with God, who of course transcends all things in Christ. Or was this just some sort of like, you know, common ethos that they were a part of. Uh, it could be in in the case of like small town America, 20th century kind of American ethos of Christianity, or it could be in the case of the small Christian school thing, just a very kind of loving, small environment. And then they get out of that. People believe other things and they want to be accepted by that new community. So it's, it's, it's more of a communal pull than it is any sort of like an, a, an actual faith decision. So I think that's a lot of the things that's going on. They didn't actually have faith in Jesus in the first place. And I think the second thing is anytime your worldview assumptions are challenged in a responsible way, it does lead you to question things. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the disservices actually that we do as Christians is that we kind of put people in we shelter our children too much to where when there were, we, and we almost make straw men of like atheistic worldview positions or other kind, those other people out there. And we, we can say, oh, they've never thought about this or how could anybody believe this or whatever. And then when the kid gets out there and they actually engage with like, oh, these are pretty reasonable people yeah. and they're actually pretty smart. Another thing is maybe they've never met a really smart Christian and all of a sudden they're meeting like really smart uh, college professors, which of course, like there's a lot of really, really smart Christians out there too. Um, but that's what I think is kind of churning these things. So, um, but again, I think in large part, it's, it's not that the pluralistic environment is per se doing that. It's actually that we've discipled them in an incomplete kind of way mm -hmm. that either led them to have faith in something that wasn't Jesus in the first place or made wrong or bad assumptions about people that weren't Christians. And when people start to engage with people that aren't Christians, it, it, it actually causes doubt because, they, because they, they weren't discipled well. It almost seems like it could be more dangerous to, to, to shelter um, for someone's faith because you don't actually know what's real. Um, if it's not being questioned in any way or they're not engaging with real thoughts and ideas, not to say that we should be cavalier to say, let's expose our children to everything dangerous possible. Of course not. But uh, Jesus himself said, like, I'm not taking you out of the world. Right. Um, exactly. And so, like, there's a way to understand. You will face trials. You will have troubles. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yes. Well, and I think when 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 the Apostle John in First John says, be in the world, but not of the world, that's actually an incredibly profound statement. So right, simple to, to be worked out because I mean, it, yeah, it's simple. But then in how we work it out there, there's a tension. There's a, com a, a good complexity to it because, I mean, I have five kids. We, from the beginning, have decided, all right, we're, we're going to put them in public school for numerous reasons. Um, so there's advantages to that, right? One of those advantages, I mean, you spoke to it, you know, on Sunday and in past messages, 
they get to confront, you know, they're forced to confront secular viewpoints, right? Early on in life, when they're in our house, when we can actually have a discussion. Um, Yet, there's also a tension that they're also influenced by those things, right? And so as a parent, now I'm, I'm having to, you know, in a sense, work harder, which I think is what we're called to do in helping them answer those questions, helping them know when to flee something and when to engage. And I just think we, we love to live in these black and white, clear categories of either separation or complete engagement. And the reality is, no, we're called to be in the world, but mm-hmm. not of the world. Right. right. And I think that's why church is so important. Church community is so important. In, in some ways. Yeah. I think what we're talking about is straw man argumentation. Mm-hmm. And even if you have like, you know, it's straw man argumentation, maybe in a actual logos kind of argumentative way, but there can even be kind of a, you know, an ethos or even pathos kind of argumentation, those bad people out there, or, or because you just never encounter people that are different than you. There's just this mystery of these people out there and everyone around you is loving and good and kind. And so I I get the Christian temptation toward these things because yes, I mean, there are children. We want to protect them. We want to keep them safe. But ultimately, yeah, it's just bad instruction. It's just bad discipleship. You know, I don't know y'all's experience in school, but I've had many professors that in order to prove a point, put straw man arguments yeah. all around their things. Yeah. And that's bad instruction. I've also had other professors that have been very careful to present the opposing argument, not in a like way of, I don't know what I believe. They were very convictional, maybe toward whatever position they had, but they presented the opposing argument fairly. And, and I so appreciate that. And, you know, I want us to be a, the kind of a church that, that does do that, that, right. that, that actually looks at the world in a fair and reasonable way, um, engaging that, that that it really is out there. Um, it's not, um, and it's and and there's some actually some image of God, and there's some good reasonable things being said by it. There's some there's some things that we shouldn't be intimidated by. Um, I just think that's that's better discipleship because what will happen, and I'm sure each one of us has testimonies, either people we know or you know I've been a pastor for ten years, so many stories. They grow up in a sheltered environment. They get to college, they hear a professor who, you know, posits an argument that they can't answer or that they'd never thought of. And then all the faith, all of a sudden their faith crumbles. That's right. And it's just like, that doesn't have to happen. But I think to your point, like it, it requires an active engagement with these things and with, with also just a, a simple confidence that God is real, right? And that, that he has answers to these things that we can actually understand, you know, these things. Yeah. I mean, just having this conversation, we, we probably need to be having this conversation more with our church. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking particularly in Atlanta. I mean, what are some of those things that we need to be prepared? What does faith in Atlanta look like? Uh, and I'll give you all a little category to think through. I'd like to hear what y'all's thoughts are on this. The old catechisms. Okay. The old catechisms, they would catechize kids, a lot of the catechisms that we love, like Heidelberg, for example. A lot of what Heidelberg is, is we believe this, not like the Roman Catholics, because everybody was, like Protestantism was kind of this new thing. Everybody kind of had this shared worldview that was really flowing from Rome. 
And so these Protestant catechism writers were saying, hold on, let's help, let's push against that a little bit. So how do, how do we catechize our kids realizing that this is, that this is kind of the ethos, this is kind of the way that Atlanta thinks, how do we have like a potency in our city um, that is faithful to the gospel? Yeah, that's a really, I think it's a really important question. And, you know, one of the, the things that you mentioned was that Atlanta is a, is a workhorse city and cities themselves, I mean, are kind of work is at the center of why a city exists in a lot of ways. Like people did hard work that made these buildings exist and these companies exist and these laboratories and all these different things. And so work, I think for people and for children in the city is something that um, there's, there's a narrative to work that's being discipled into the people, into the children, into the families. And so we actually have a gospel centered understanding of what work is. And that's a very important thing to, uh, to counter the narrative that's being uh, given to people in the city. And, um, and so I think that's a really important kind of to your point of, you know, catechism needs to kind of respond, address the common things in our city, in particular Atlanta, because we are such a workhorse place. Um, I, I think that that, added, that idea of vocation, of work, that needs to be addressed from the perspective of the gospel. That's good. Yeah, I, there are these foundational truths that then, then work themselves out as we engage in the different temptations and, you know, challenges of, of the city that we live in. So, I mean, even to that one, you know, it's, it's not just, it's not, you know, work is bad or good. It's, it's this foundational principle of God has called us to work and mm -hmm. it's a good thing, mm -hmm. but God has also balanced that with this idea of rest mm -hmm. and resting in him. And so how do you work that out so that work doesn't become an idol mm. so that work doesn't become the goal right that you're as long as your kid learns to work hard well you've succeeded well no as long as your kid learns to work according to how god has called them to mm -hmm. work that's mm -hmm. that's the goal right mm -hmm. that then these principles that then work themselves out how do they understand how to truly rest mm -hmm. and that i mean i'm trying to teach my kids this right now like entertainment is not necessarily rest mm. right there's there's a rest in the lord that actually finds our our purpose and our goal being rest in him that actually restores our souls and that could be in nature that could be watching a movie but you know there, there's this idea of you know we would just work until we drop and then we crash and then we just binge watch something on netflix and then we go back and you know that's mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. it's not rest and mm -hmm. and they, these are the things that we're trying to work, work out with our kids. Mm -hmm. And the curse is real. You know, the curse of sin is real. And so there's effects of that throughout our city, throughout the way we work, the motivations behind why we work, uh, what we expect from work, like the curse has invaded those things. And, and in a fundamental way, the gospel is bringing redemption, um, first and foremost in, through fellowship with God, restoring that. But there's, there's tastes of, the future redemption of all things that we'll get to experience in this life. And I think we should think carefully about how has the curse uh, affected these aspects of, of work. And then let's, let's be, uh, let's pursue gospel restoration in those ways. And I yeah. think that'll be very potent um, to your point. <clears throat> no, that's good. Yeah. And I think, I think as we disciple one another and it's not just discipling kids, I mean, it's really, I mean, I'm probably more susceptible to the narratives of our city than, I mean, you know, we, we're all susceptible to the narrative. So as we push the gospel into one another's lives, 
and its redemptive quality, knowing the environment that we're in. Like if, you know, Jordan, you, you just moved down from the D.C. area. You know, D.C. is like a power town, right? right. It's a little yeah. different than Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, oh, I had lunch with the minority whip today or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. You know, it's it's those are the kinds of like, you know, somebody told me one time, like Washington, D.C. is everyone is a number and the president's number one. <laughs> And, you know, it's it follows from there. Yeah. And you may be like number 985 and the goal for the day is to become number 984. Right. It's it's to get a little more power in the city. You know, I, I think Atlanta doesn't really there's not like this hierarchy structure of power in as much as it is just can you be productive? Can you get things done? And really that invades. I mean, like, I mean, I just think, golly, like the commuters, like when we first moved here, we <laughs> we lived in Covington. And man, I just think, man, there are these, there are folks. I mean, I'm so glad I live, you know, in town. I would leave Covington at 530 and like hit the commute coming in I-20 East. And it was just, it's race. I mean, like it's truly the rat race. I'm just trying to get in. And there's just this intensity out on the highway. I'm thinking that's how your day starts every day. (laughs) Then you're just like off and running in this like intense way. And you're just like, I got to be productive. I got to go. I got to get it. Yeah. And so anyway, it, yeah. it, it, I think being able to push against those things is, is really important. So your second point was, you know, gospel call to the city. And, and you, you referenced that, you know, early, early Christianity, most of the Christians lived in the city. Um, this is something that as a family we've wrestled through. I mean, before here, we lived in Arlington, Virginia, right outside D.C., it was a city and it was densely populated. It was super expensive. It was fast paced. Uh, and yet, you know, we felt, we felt a calling there. Um, now to be honest, like we're facing that same challenge where we're looking to buy a house in the next year or two and we're faced with this. Okay. Do we, do we live, you know, in the city? Do we live outside with, you know, all the, all these things. So, um, there was a book came out a couple of years ago by Rod. I don't know say his last name, Dreyer. Uh, it was called the Benedict option and, and in it, he talked about, okay, we need to recognize that the culture is increasingly against, you know, Christians and Christianity. And his argument was, um, you know, I don't want to create a straw man, but as I understand it, his argument was we need to make sure that we bind together with one another, with Christians in order to kind of protect our Christianity, if you will. Um, so I know that's out there, maybe not as extreme as that. And I don't know if the, I don't, I don't think his argument is necessarily extreme as that we need to completely separate. Right. However, there is that narrative, right? And we've talked about it in, you know, past weeks and sermons and talkbacks that, you know, the, the, the impulse when we see persecution, when we see, you know, a increasingly secular culture, particularly in cities, it's to separate, right? It's to find Christians that we can find some sense of protection and, and goodness, if you will. So I'd love for you to interface with that. Okay, you know, you you kind of challenged us to consider, you know, okay, God, God has called many of us to live in cities, to engage in the city, to be present in the city. Um, and yet, you know, some people would counter with, but you know, shouldn't we, shouldn't we find Christians? Shouldn't we find right. kind of this protective place? I think that what Dreer was trying to do, I, I don't necessarily agree with his conclusion, though I kind of understand it. So 
I think what he's saying, I think what he was trying to do is, is important for this conversation. He was looking around at Christianity and he was realizing, okay, Christians don't know anything. Like, you know, if you go talk to any normal Christian about historical Christian faith, they don't really understand it. They don't really understand the worldview implications of it. They don't know how that it impacts their life. They don't know why it should make them think a certain way about a certain thing. And so really his argument is when secularism collapses, okay, because it's, I mean, you know, it, it, it's like you can only like ignore, like, for example, you can only say I believe in science while ignoring the science of gender, for example, for so long. Right. And then ultimately, like all of that kind of, you know, unreasonable thought, like ultimately collapses. Right. So secularism is going to collapse. It's already collapsing in Europe. Right. I mean, yeah. so we, we know that secularism is 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 has a short shelf life. And what Dreer's basically saying is when that happens, will the state of the church be strong enough to like pick up the pieces and 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 so that's really what he's saying and, and so he's kind of saying like why don't we like kind of disengage with the culture Bunker down because the culture is messing up christianity because we're trying to do both because we're like trying to be in the world but not of the world we're like we're actually not of christ yeah. and so let's like basically pull pull the guard in, get a really strong force so that when secularism collapses, we'll actually have something to, to show for it. Now, I, I would say, like, here's kind of how I would say that, you know, the, the, the rea my reaction to that is this. There's always, it's not like, it's not like right now there's a threat to Christianity, but I mean, when, when secularism collapses, what's going to be there? Islam, right? And so like, you know, it, it's, it's not like there's, going to be this like empty time where somebody can just rise up. Like there's, there's always going to be, you know, culture is made up of cultural forces that are always present. Right. And so I think that we want the Christian presence in the culture to be there. Um, but we just have to make sure that it's actually substantive. And so his, his call towards substantive Christianity, I would say yes. And amen. His withdrawal from the culture that's where I would critique him and say, you know, no, like we we have to have a proper understanding of inward facing relationships and outward facing relationships mm -hmm. or of gathering and scattering. So it's it's actually those impulses that I think that have been lost in the church. And so our gatherings, for example, you know, I even know like a lot of the gatherings in Atlanta on Sunday morning, what are they? they're really primarily not focused on any sort of a transcendent experience or any sort of disciple making. They're focused on an outward facing kind of evangelistic thing, which again, I understand that impulse, yeah. but what that creates is an empty kind of Christianity right. and the hearers of the word have really nothing to do when they engage with the world. And so we need to recapture this understanding of inward facing relationships and outward facing relationships of meaningful gathering where we're stirred along, where we're trained, if you will, and then scattering. And, and I think that that can happen. Like for example, I'm grateful that there are institutions like Southern Seminary, for example, which is really an inward facing, very church focused thing. If you will, that's kind of the monastery of our day that's holding the line of truth. But most Christians, I think, need to have more of this, you know, inward facing, outward facing, gathering and scattering kind of breathing rhythm. 
And that's not like just for a time until secularism collapses, but that's what we should always be doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, something that I even just freshly reflected on to that point that I had to repent of, um, and, and to your point earlier of like not just casting straw men for those who are, you know, offering opposing views on things. Colossians 4 speaks of this graciousness towards outsiders. And then, but typically we're very harsh towards outsiders um, and their ideas. And then Ephesians 4 speaks of this speaking the truth in love towards insiders. To insiders yeah. And so the, we're, we're typically kind of lenient with the insider. Yeah. And yeah. I think <laughs> if we switched that, it would be so much better. And that's just been something I've been reflecting on personally recently, but I think that's kind of the way to do what you're saying. Um, graciousness towards outsiders, speaking the truth and love towards insiders. Amen. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. And what, what you, I mean, this series and, you know, I think something that God's just done in my family's life over the years is this idea of God has called us to something, um, you know, <laughs> invigorating and challenging um, that, you know, the, this rhythm, you use the word breath. I love that. Like breathing in and breathing out. Like there's a, there's a scat, there's a gathering and then a scattering. There's a inward, you know, inward relationships and then outward relationships that, you know, we, God has called us to that and, and it's good, right? Doesn't mean that it's easy. Doesn't mean that it's always right. comfortable, but it's good. And, and that's, that's, that has helped me in so many different aspects of church life. So, you know, I think I've talked before about like small groups, community groups, why do community groups multiply? Well, it's not comfortable, you know, but it's good yeah. because God has called us to his mission. Why do churches plant churches? It's not comfortable, but it's good, right? right? Like God's called us to this mission. I think a very similar thing applies here. Like for those that God has called to be in the city, doesn't necessarily mean it's comfortable, right? Like it, but it's good because God's, God's called us to, to be there. And that vision, that calling is the thing that pushes us through the sacrifice that's involved in, in doing it. Um, there's, there was a book that came out, I think over a decade now, it was called to change the world, uh, by James Davison Hunter. And he, he both critiques this idea of particularly in the eighties, um, this idea that, well, if we just, just get Christians in the right government positions, then the world will change. And he just kind of dismantles that like that didn't work very well. Um, but what he ends up saying is, is calling Christians to this idea of faithful presence that as, because there is influence in, you know, influential places, institutions and, you know, businesses and that sort of thing. But, you know, he argues that Christians are need to be there, but it's you being faithfully present there. So, you know, whether you're a real estate agent or whether you're, you know, high up in Home Depot or, you know, Delta or whatever, like it's the faithful presence of me being a Christian in that environment that I actually show integrity, that I actually work hard. Um, that I actually, you know, have the right priorities in my life. Like that, those are the things that actually, as we work for good in these places, that actually has the power to, to influence, to impact, mm -hmm. because then we're able to speak about why, right? why we do these things. And I, I just think that for me, that's a really helpful category, like faithful presence. I'm not called to be mm -hmm. removed. 
but I'm called to be faithful being there. It's not just assimilating. It's not just being someone who never talks. It's actually engaging, being faithfully Mm -hmm. present. And, and God, God can actually use that to eventually impact a whole city, which is, you know, kind of your third point that you didn't didn't necessarily get to. Right. Influence from the city. You know, Jamie, you just kind of had, so you're coming to Christ covenant, joining the A team here. (laughs) We're excited, but you, you just came from, I would say like a very influential institution where mm-hmm. there's probably not like a ton of Christians. I know there there's some. Mm-hmm. Um, what was what was that experience like for you? Like being a believer kind of in a more, you know, secularly minded place? Um, I mean, it was it was very interesting. I think, you know, kind of sharing a little bit of my story. Just when I started working at SCAD, my intent was not to stay very long, but, and I had, um, my hope was to go to the mission field one day. I'd come from the mission field and was hoping to go back after having been at SCAD for a year. But I think God really just, I mean, he continued to open doors for opportunities, but I also quickly learned how much opportunity there is within a place like SCAD just to be salt and light. And I quickly realized too, how much you stand out. Mm. Um, and I (laughs) developed the reputation of the religious girl, but um, I think within that, though, it gave me opportunity to speak to people um, to just share and how your work ethic matters, how the way you speak matters, how the way you treat people matters, your attitude at work, all of these things. There is so much opportunity to be influential in that way or represent the kingdom well. I think that was something that became very evident to me is like, gosh, there's so much opportunity to represent Christ well in yeah. the way that I work and the way that I I'm intentional with my coworkers, even, even if I disagree with them, um, and different things, they're just, you can love them really well. And that was very, very evident. Gosh, I feel like there's so much more we could say on this. Um, and you know, I think, I, I think one of the things I really wanted the folks to take away, you know, and I don't, I, I'm not trying to say, I obviously think cities are important places. I, I'm certainly going to say they're more important than mm-hmm. like rural areas. Right. I think what I was trying to really get across, though, is, yes, cities are influential places. We need Christians to feel called to the city. And Christians should not retreat from the city Mm. just because a place of plurality, a place where most people disagree with you, Mm -hmm. like SCAD, a place where, you know, um, a lot of, you know, there's, there's challenges or there's, you know, there's hard kind of social issues that you have to deal with. We shouldn't retreat from those things just for the sake of comfort. Right. And and that's what I would say. That that's really how Christians should live. And so whether God's calling you to a city or whether God's calling you to a rural area. I mean, I know right. Blake Rogers, for example, has a real heart for the rural pastor. Why? Well, because Blake, I mean, thank good thank the Lord for places um like Eastman, First Baptist Eastman. And he went to a smaller church before that. I can't remember the name, but like Thank, thank the Lord for churches like that, you know, the pump. Thank, thank the Lord for the pump at First Baptist <laughs> Eastman that, you know, produced a guy like Blake Rogers. And so, yes, we, we need faithful Christians in rural places. We need faithful Christians in suburban places. We need faithful Christians in urban places. Mm-hmm. Um, and and calling should be the motivation, not comfort. Right. So, well, gosh, what, a, Jamie, great insights. Oh, thank thank you. you so much. First ever talk back. So for Jamie Freud, Jeremy Brooks, <laughs> and Jordan Coughlin, I'm Jason Dees. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.